Today we begin this uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount. That in Matthew's Gospel, there are five primary teaching sections, and this is one of them. And um, it is Matthew f- chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it, it, is, uh, it looks like a really long sermon. Some of you have commented that sometimes my sermons can be a bit long. Um, and I get the message. Uh, and <laughs> I just want you to know that you'd probably really be bored at Jesus' sermons too. Um, not that his would be boring, but they would be entertaining, like the annual meeting. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, I've beaten that one to death about as much as I can, I think. Um, so what we have here is, is a sermon that goes on for three chapters, but is broken up into sections. And so um, in particular today, uh, we're going to begin a two-week look at the Beatitudes, which is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. So today we're going to look at 1 through 6, and the next Sunday we'll look at 7 through 12. And the reason why we want to take a look at this um, is because there is so much packed into it. And, and so the, the question when you come to, to this particular, the, the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus, it says, went up into the mountain, and he took his disciples, his disciples came with him, and he began to teach them. Now, great crowds have been following them, um, so we don't know whether some of the crowds went up the mountain with them or not. It doesn't say anything about that. We could assume that maybe a few people went up there to listen. Um, but primarily, this is directed to the disciples. And hence, then, it is directed to the followers, to the congregation, to those members. It's to the people that are connected with Jesus. So in this sermon, is it, is it a new law or command? Some scholars have argued that because Jesus went up to the mountain like Moses went up to the mountain and he brings down this new teaching and Jesus gives the new teaching up at the mountain. So is this the new Ten Commandments? Or is this a teaching in response to what people have been living? In other words, is this a demand Or is this a gift, a gift to which we respond? This, I'm going to take the argument or the position that this is a gift, that this is a gift of discipleship. This is what happens when we believe the story and when we follow Jesus. This is what happens when we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and we follow him. It is not something you do to earn it. It is not a new command, a new law that you must now succeed with, but rather it is our response to what Jesus is doing for us, in us, and through us. In particular, um, I think, you know, I've preached on this Sermon um, on the Mount, and in particular in the Beatitudes, many times. Um, In my early ministry years, this came up in the lectionary twice a year. It always came up in the season after Epiphany, Um, and then it also came up uh, during the uh, All Saints Sunday. So twice a year, this would be a piece of scripture that I would preach on. I think I have more experience today 
pastorally to be able to reflect on this. Now, it's not to say that hearing my preaching 30 years ago wasn't worthwhile, nor is it to say that hearing my preaching today is worthwhile, um, just that I have some different perspective um, pastorally that I think can help to illuminate what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, to his followers. So as we take a look at this now this morning, we're going to begin with the Beatitudes. And what seems to be present in these blessings is a recognition of a loss. You might even say a recognition of a loss of hope. To truly receive these blessings, you have to lose. For some people, they have lost everything. They've lost a hope in government. Now, I know ours is kind of a mess right now, but um, I think that we, at this point, still have no idea what the loss of government support can mean in terms of what other nations have to experience. But some people have lost hope in government. Some people have lost hope in religion. I was at a meeting a couple years ago where our presiding bishop, Elizabeth Eaton, was speaking, and one of the things that she talked about was um, that she encounters a lot of people on the plane, because she's always flying, traveling places, and she said, I encounter a lot of different people, and one of the things that I often hear from people when they find out that I'm a pastor and, um, is that, well, I don't go to church, but I am spiritual. I'm just not very religious. And so there's this association with being religious equating to, with going to church. And, and so she said her response now to these conversations that she has is that she says, well, I represent a church and we're very religious, but I don't know how spiritual we are. Now, what she's reflecting upon is what her experience as a presiding bishop has enabled her to see that in our congregations, we have often been very religious, but have we been spiritually connected with God? And that's what these Beatitudes are really all about. It's not just going through the motions. It is how is God speaking to you, to me? How is God speaking to us in a way that brings hope to the hopeless? that brings hope to people who've lost everything, lost their hope in government, their hope in religion. They've lost their hope in economics. They lost their hope even in salvation. And that kind of hopelessness is prevalent in parts of our country and parts of our world. It may not be prevalent where you live, but it is prevalent in other places loss of hope. And it's not the kind of hope that you can, you can uh, get, get out of hopelessness. Uh, I, was, I had a conversation yesterday with this gentleman, 
And he was telling me that he hasn't really prepared for retirement. Um, and so he said, well, my retirement plan is I'm going to be purchasing the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. That, that's his retirement plan. Now, he has a great, he's an engineer, he has a great job, he should be able to save money, I don't know. He's got a house, but, but I think he was probably trying to be funny. But that's not really hopelessness like what Jesus is encountering and speaking of here. The kind of hopelessness that Jesus is encountering, that he speaks of, is a hopelessness that is more of, of despair. And so, when he sees this loss of hope, Jesus responds to the hopeless, to the downtrodden, with blessing. And literally, with happiness. That's what this Greek word which gets translated as be blessed means is to be happy. You, you know, you're happy. You're going to be happy. So the promise that Jesus brings is a promise to those who have given up. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the first blessing that Jesus articulates. So who are the poor in spirit? Well, um, Matthew defines it differently than Luke. Luke talks about just the poor. Matthew's talking about the poor in spirit. He uses a whole different word um, than, than the word for poverty. What he's speaking about is uh, a spiritual poverty. The poor in the spirit, poor in spirit are people who have um, they've lost everything in the sense that they can bring nothing to God. They have nothing to offer, financially or spiritually. They are utterly destitute in the realm of the Spirit of God. Their spirits are broken. You might even say that they are spiritually unwell, emotionally unstable. The poor in spirit are also humble and contrite. And they tremble. They tremble at the name of God. The poor in spirit, Jesus says, are blessed. They are blessed by Jesus. Several years ago, I was asked, not by a church, but by a recovering community, a community of people who have suffered from the illness of alcoholism and drug dependency, I was asked by them to speak to them in regards to a woman who, young woman who had been a part of their community who had taken her own life. They asked me to speak to them about this from the context of a pastor from a spiritual perspective, not a religious perspective, but from a spiritual perspective. And so I accepted their offer, and what I, what I discovered as I listened to the story was that this woman fit the exact description of whom Jesus was speaking of. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who spiritually are unwell, 
those who struggle, those who have lost hope in their ability to do anything. This woman had been sober for years, had been clean from drugs for years, but a couple of her friends in the recovery group had told her that she wasn't completely clean and sober until she got off all of her meds. And she was on meds prescribed by a psychiatrist to help keep her spiritually, emotionally stable. So when she went off those drugs, she began to nosedive and she crashed. And she was never able she was never able to restore herself, to recover herself. And so she did the only thing she could do, and that was to end it for herself. She had taken her life. Now, the reason why the recovering community wanted to hear from me, I think, is because they wanted to hear a promise. If you're spiritual but not religious, you don't always go around the circles of the communities where the promises are proclaimed. And so my sense was that what they were desiring was to hear a word that could speak to their grief, to their broken hearts. And so I spoke this particular verse to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, too much of our history in Christianity, especially when it has come to mental illness, to issues of suicide, too much of our history has been on the side of judgment and condemnation. But that isn't what Jesus says here. In this very verse, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For years we have promised judgment, and Jesus has promised the kingdom the kingdom of heaven. So I articulated that promise to that group that afternoon. Jesus then goes on to the next one. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. The mourning that is described here can be encompass the grief of the loss of loved ones. And so that is an aspect of what Jesus is talking about, but it, it's also more. Because the other thing that he is speaking of here is that there are people who mourn for, for a reconnection with God. People grieve today. There are certain believers, followers of Jesus, who grieve today 
because we have become so separate in terms of our relationship with God, with one another. We grieve that there is a separation between the body of Christ and the people of the world. In the early church, the body of Christ was an amazing force of good news to all kinds of people. And today, my fear is that the body of Christ, right or wrong, is perceived of as the people of bad news, not the people of good news. And so the grief is that there is this chasm between the people of this world and God, and that as Christians, we are not being effective at building bridges. And so the, the blessing here is blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve the loss of love, love of loved ones, love of God. I think of the family of that woman who ended her life. They would fit the description of the world. They were not sure how to receive me. I asked to meet with them ahead of time, a few days before we had this service for her daughter, their daughter. And you could see the fear in their faces. Was this spiritual clergyman going to judge my daughter, condemn her? Was he going to bring bad news? Because that's kind of what they were expecting. Or could there be the hope of good news? Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek is the next beatitude. Now, who are the meek? The meek are those who are gentle, kind-hearted. Um, however, when we talk about the meek, meekness is not weakness. It takes great strength to be meek. And the meek are not submissive. Followers of Jesus that are meek follow Jesus with humility. They do not insist on their own way. Rather, they trust and depend upon God and the power of God. The strength of the meek is seen in their humility and their genuine dependence upon God. In Matthew 11, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus describes this meekness. And it's interesting because in the description, he uses himself as the example. Then Jesus said, 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. A yoke was, um, was a teaching. So if, if you took someone's yoke, you were taking their teaching. You were accepting that they could help guide you. Um, and, and so he says, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. What he's saying literally here is, I am meek. Jesus is not saying that I am weak. He's saying that I am meek. I will not insist on my own way. And you will find rest for your souls here. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give is light. Religious leaders of Jesus' day had created a system of heavy burdens. And Jesus wanted the people to know that that was not God's intent. God's intent was for the burden to be light. And he says, if you want an example of meekness, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And when we do that, it is amazing at how God can transform lives and change lives. I mean, pastorally, I have been able to see this. I remember uh, a young high school girl that was addicted to, to uh, drugs. And it was through the help of the recovering programs and her renewal of her faith that she became clean and sober. I remember working with a young high school girl who was a cutter. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's people that live with so much internal spiritual pain, emotional pain, that they cut themselves because the pain from the cutting is something that takes their mind off of the pain emotionally that they are experiencing. This woman was on drugs to control her cutting. And as she became a follower of Jesus, what was amazing to see was her doctors told her, you don't need the drugs anymore. You're healed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm sorry, blessed are the meek. Not the weak, the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. They shall experience promise of recovery. And then the fourth and final one for today is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This kind of righteousness is an intense longing for righteousness. And, and righteousness is being able to, to be made right with God, to stand in right relationship with God individually and also corporately. I mean, one of the things that, that we realize is that, that we sin individually, but we also sin as communities. And so God wants us to be right with God. And so the way he has done that is he's given us his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, taught the Sermon on the Mount, eventually went to Jerusalem, was arrested, crucified, and died, and was raised again on the third day in order that we might have life so that the poor in spirit 
that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would have hope. Righteousness, foundationally, is a right standing with God. I have a friend who is a pastor. Unfortunately, he is without a call. He's been without a call for several years. And um, he's had uh, uh, three calls. First call was as a youth pastor. Second call was as associate pastor. Um, the second call ended. They asked him to resign because they were building a new church sanctuary and they didn't have enough money to build the sanctuary and to pay another pastor, so they asked him to leave so they could afford to build the sanctuary. Um, kind of strange, but anyhow, so he conceded and gave his resignation. He took another call, um, and there um, they asked him to leave because um, he would wear jeans to church on Sunday. You know, God forbid that you would ever wear denim to worship the most high God. Um, that, that broke the deal. While that and his son's hair was really long and they thought his son should get a haircut. So my friend expressed to me his, his grief, his pain, that he feels called to be a pastor, but there's no church that will receive his call. <clears throat> and so he, he struggles, not financially, he's done very well, he's a very successful businessman. He got a job in real estate and he has done very well in retail uh, development of real estate. It's not the money that he wants, it's not the job that he's looking for, it's the call to live out his mission as a pastor. Fortunately, he's worshiping at a church where they allow him to do some work and ministry alongside of them on a real part-time basis. But deep down inside, he would give up the six-figure job for a very small salary to be able to be a pastor again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are they. For they will be filled. They will be satisfied. My friend's cup is filled. He is satisfied, even without a pastoral call, because he knows that he stands in right relationship with God. He knows that God has claimed him, that God has sent his son to be his Messiah. And so he has no fears of the loss of that relationship. But oh, he still hungers and he still thirsts to be able to proclaim righteousness. When we talk about thinking small as the theme for today, what I'm wanting us to focus on is that these beatitudes, these blessings that we have looked at today are not about being big. They're about being small. They're not about doing great things. They're about doing nothing so that God can do something within you. 
which requires us, when we think small, to repent, to submit, and to trust. To trust in God that no matter what we are going through, God understands. And if we have felt like we have lost everything, to know that God loves you so much that he wants you to experience his blessing. He wants you to know of how much he loves you. The disciples were blessed to be in the midst of Jesus up on that mountain hearing him teach this sermon. And we are blessed. You are blessed because you are here today. And you have a desire, a thirst, to hear the word proclaimed. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Amen.